Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. Some 1,500 years after Alaric led the Visigoths in the sacking of Rome, the Eternal City was braced for another invasion. There was talk of as many as a million supporters of fascist politician Benito Mussolini seizing power by force. What followed was simultaneously anticlimactic and yet profoundly significant. In this episode, I recount the 1922 March on Rome. At the turn of the 20th century, the unified nation of Italy had only been on the map for four decades. It had been cobbled together from independent states and areas that had previously been under the rule of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Even then, some areas populated by Italians still remained under foreign control. The head of state was King Victor Emmanuel III. His father, the late King Umberto, had told him that being a monarch simply meant knowing how to mount a horse, read a newspaper, and to sign your name. Umberto's dismissive explanation of the role failed to grasp the realities of the political situation in the early 20th century. By this time, the coffee houses in Rome, like those in Vienna, Paris, and London, were full of agitators and idealists sharing new ideas, dangerous ideas, such as socialism, anarchism, humanism, and even atheism in a state that was, and still is, at the very heart of Christendom. These ideas permeated their way from the intelligentsia into the working-class neighbourhoods, and one man with a keen interest on political theory was a blacksmith from northern Italy named Alessandro Mussolini. He admired Karl Marx, as well as the Italian revolutionary Garibaldi. Like many, he was dissatisfied with the conditions the working class lived and worked in. While still a teenager, he became involved with the revolutionary socialists, and soon became a member of the local government. But he wasn't a man for dialogue. He had frequent run-ins with the police, and he settled political disputes with violence, And for a time, he was even placed under house arrest. Alessandro despised the Catholic Church, and he was an avowed atheist. This put him at loggerheads with his in-laws, who effectively disowned him. Unlike her husband, Rosa Mussolini Niemaltoni was a devout Catholic. But their firstborn son, Benito, quickly fell under the influence of his ill-tempered, an often inebriated father. He trained as a blacksmith and became fascinated with politics. Benito Mussolini now is often portrayed as a thuggish brute, but while he lacked grace and was never slow to use violence, beneath the tough exterior, he was an intellectual. As a boy, he studied history, politics and philosophy. His controversial views and violent character saw him struggle to fit in at the religious school 
where he once stabbed a classmate with a penknife. He was then transferred to a secular school, where he excelled academically, and upon graduation in 1901, he became a teacher. But mandatory national service was on the horizon, and so to avoid this responsibility, Mussolini fled to Switzerland. While there, he continued to study and became fascinated with the work of the French political theorist Georges Sorel. He thought socialism was incompatible with democracy. He advocated the use of strikes and the formation of localised unions or collectives to use as tools in the working class struggle against the Liberal Democrats. He also justified the use of violence as a suitable means to an end. There are unsubstantiated reports that while in Geneva, the young Mussolini crossed paths with another budding revolutionary, Vladimir Lenin. What is known is that Mussolini was deported back to Italy after agitating for violent strikes in Switzerland. By this time, he was an active writer, contributing to a variety of socialist newspapers. But he really came to prominence domestically when he was jailed for five months for his role in violent protests about the Italian war in Libya. This type of colonial action went against his socialist principles, and having been released from jail, he became the editor of the left-wing newspaper Avanti. He also wrote periodically for the American-owned Hearst News Service. Despite his credentials, his vision of the world began to evolve and he moved away from his father's kind of firebrand socialism. His gradual rejection of Marxism was accelerated by World War I. At the outset of the conflict, Italy had no obvious role to play. Previously, Italians had lived under the rule of the French and the Austro-Hungarians, who were in either side of the conflict. Situationally, Italy was at a similar point in its evolution, to the recently unified Germany, although Kaiser Wilhelm held the kind of autocratic power that King Victor Emmanuel III lacked. Russia was viewed in Western Europe as a backward country, and the absolutist monarchy had few friends among either the Liberal Democrats or the Communists of Italy. But the Entente powers did have one carrot to offer Italy, territory, specifically land occupied by native Italians on the southern periphery of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was an area Mussolini knew only too well, having spent time in the Austrian city of Trent. The idea of liberating fellow Italians appealed to him greatly, and there was an added bonus. While Italy would join the war as an ally of Russia, Italy's involvement would bolster the Entente and lengthen the war. Mussolini correctly predicted that a long war would further weaken the ailing Russian aristocracy and increase the likelihood of a socialist revolution in the country. But the socialists in Italy were divided on the concept of war. Some embraced it on nationalist grounds, while others rejected it. Having first favoured the latter view, Mussolini quickly came out in opposition to the pacifists. While doing so, he also abandoned the Marxist doctrine of class warfare and instead began pushing for an idea of a revolutionary movement led by powerful figures 
regardless of class. A little over a decade after fleeing Italy to avoid national service, Mussolini volunteered to join the war effort. He and his countrymen found themselves caught up in some of the most ferocious battles of the war. In unrelenting conditions along the Alps, the Italians suffered massive losses, but Mussolini was promoted to the rank of corporal during his nine months on the front line. Having been injured, he was then sent home, where he was recruited by the British intelligence agency MI5 to become a pro-war propagandist. The agency paid him £100 a week to churn out nationalistic articles that they hoped would bolster the support for the war in a country that was increasingly engulfed in anti-war sentiment. Fairly or otherwise, the British regarded Italy as an unreliable partner. Unlike the British and French, the Italians had no vast empire to hold on to. They had something to gain from the war, territory in the Alps, but they had little to lose. And as the war dragged on, it further exacerbated economic problems in Italy that saw increased strike action and social discontent. A strength of the Italian democracy was that it spawned a multitude of political parties representing every conceivable group, whereas other nations had seen their democracies develop into a system where two or three powerful parties jostled for control. But this broad array of political choices that enabled Italians to vote for a party aligned with their personal views was also a weakness. With a plethora of options, no single party could gain a majority in the parliament. This meant fragile alliances were hastily forged by disparate political parties in smoke-filled rooms. These types of negotiated settlements were brittle, and subject to fracturing any time a new issue rose to the fore. When he left office in 1916, Italian Prime Minister Antonio Salandra had been in office for just over two years. None of the five men who followed him lasted so long in the job, as one coalition after another fell by the wayside. During this period, Mussolini was further refining his own political ideology, and in doing so, he turned to the Greek philosopher Plato and his work The Republic. In the text, the philosopher Socrates engages in an imagined dialogue where he examines the pros and cons of various forms of government. Concepts explored included the nature of the state, rule by an elite, and works for a common good. All of these appealed to Mussolini. In 1919, he formed a new political group in Milan called Fasci Italiani Combattimento, which roughly translates as the Italian League of Combatants. It is from the first part of the title, Fasci, that we get the word fascist, and people often point to this as the origin of the term. In truth, it derives from the Latin word fasci, which means a bundle, as in a bundle of logs or twigs tied together. And in the late 19th century, this word began to be used more broadly, referring to groups of people as fasci to indicate their strength. For example, the fasci siciliani were a socialist political group who agitated for reforms in the 1890s. But it was Mussolini's adoption of the term that soon came to represent the ideas of Italy that included strong government, 
nationalism, anti-socialism, and the need for additional space, something the Germans would later call Lebensraum, and use as one of the justifications for World War II. The idea that Mussolini would suddenly embrace this concept of an Italy bursting at the seams in need of acquiring new land is farcical on at least two levels. Firstly, just a decade earlier, he had been one of the leading critics of Italy's incursion into Libya, which he condemned as being imperialist. Additionally, Mussolini himself was concerned about the slow growth rate of the Italian population. It sat at 37 million at this time, which was roughly matched by the UK, although the British were bolstered by their empire. France had more people and again extensive colonies. Germany had roughly twice the population of Italy, as did the Austro-Hungarian Empire, while Russia had five times as many citizens as Italy. In Mussolini's eyes, this imbalance was a sign of weakness, and he felt Italian couples should be encouraged to have more kids. He believed Italy could never be a major military power until its population topped 60 million. Nevertheless, he advocated the expansion of the country's territory, even if he didn't have the bodies to fill a larger footprint. Italy did gain some territory ceded from Austro-Hungary at the end of the war, but this prize was small consolation for a victor that was now racked by economic problems. The situation was exacerbated as war veterans returned home, only to find that jobs were scarce and living conditions had deteriorated. Socialism was gaining in popularity, and events in Moscow encouraged the leftists to think they could similarly change Italy. But there were two groups who feared a Bolshevik-style revolution, the wealthy and the military. Just as happened later in Germany, these two groups decided to enter an unholy alliance with the fascists to maintain the status quo. The wealthy industrialists were primarily located in northern Italy, and many of these business magnates had enriched themselves during the war as their factories turned out equipment for the conflict. This was distasteful, to say the least, to the factory workers, and indeed would-be factory workers, who couldn't find work at the war's end. But as is often the case in history, these wealthy individuals had a convenient scapegoat. Foreigners. Suffice to say, after a bloody conflict, there wasn't much love after the war for Italy's northern neighbours, the Austrians. But the real ire was directed at their former allies, specifically the British and the French. It was these nations that had enticed the erstwhile neutral nation into the war with the promise of annexing Austrian territory. They did get some of it, although it was the area along the Alps they'd been directly fighting for during the conflict. What they didn't get was a huge swathe of land along the western coastline of the Balkans. Instead of being ceded to Italy, this territory was incorporated into the newly created southern Slav superstate of Yugoslavia. From the perspective of some Italians, they'd been dragged into a war that had nothing to do with them and they'd been screwed out of their prizes. This bolstered support for the nationalists, led now by Mussolini. But at this point, the ranks of the socialists were still far larger, and it was members of this group 
who organised a wave of strikes and protests around the nation. They demanded better wages. The business owners argued these strikes were only exacerbating the economic problems. Tasked with resolving this was the government, which remained impotent. On a practical level, comprised of a loose alliance of different parties, it was difficult to get the ruling coalition to agree on anything, much less the kind of police crackdown business leaders advocated. But there was also the matter of historical precedent. Just a decade earlier, the Tsar of Russia had created a wave of martyrs when he violently dealt with similar protests. This resulted in increased support for the communists and helped to spark the Bolshevik revolution. In the absence of government intervention, business leaders turned to Mussolini and his now rapidly growing band of black-shirted followers. His party had failed to gain a single seat in the elections of 1919, but they made their mark through other means. As strikes erupted, Hordes of black shirts would violently break up demonstrations, most notably at the Alfa Romeo factory in Milan. In essence, the business magnates were like the medieval barons, with the black shirts serving as their knights, and the central government taking on the role of an inept monarch like Edward II of England. That same year, fascists, without the knowledge of Mussolini, firebombed the offices of the socialist paper Avanti, the publication for which he had previously served as editor. Mussolini, despite his lack of direct involvement, later cited this as the fascists' first major success. Also during 1919, the fascists benefited from the firebrand nationalist Gabriele Nunzio leading a force of Italian veterans to seize the city of Fiume and prevent it from becoming part of Yugoslavia. He tried to annex it to Italy, before declaring it to be a free city and eventually waging a war on his homeland. The whole project was designed to show that he and his followers could do what the impotent national government had failed to do. Mussolini cashed in by raising awareness of this conflict and raising funds for the rogue city. However, this money stayed in the hands of the fascists and never made its way to Fiume. By 1920, Mussolini had shifted his focus from the urban areas to the countryside, where the socialists were numerous in number. Black shirts would assault left-wing politicians, and in some cases, forced local government figures to resign from their posts under the threat of violence. The national government, led by Giovanni Giolitti, failed to act, and in fact, he embraced the fascists and allowed Mussolini's party to join his right-wing coalition for the 1921 elections. Giolitti wasn't a fascist, far from it. In fact, at his core, he was a centre-left politician. But he was also an opportunist, and over five terms as Prime Minister, he had vacillated from right to left, making deals with a wide spectrum of political parties so that he could stay in power. At this juncture, his greatest fear was a communist takeover. It had happened in Russia, and Lenin's comrades had briefly established the Soviet state in Hungary. In his quest to avoid the same fate for Italy, he was willing to forge an alliance with anyone opposed to socialism, even if that meant working hand-in-hand hand with violent thugs. In the elections that followed, Mussolini's fascists won just 7% of the votes. 
but grouped together with their allies in GLT's national bloc, the coalition as a whole won 19% of the vote. Not enough to form a government, so a further five political parties were added to this coalition to create a majority in parliament. It's worth noting that in these elections, the single party with the largest share of the vote was the Italian Socialist Party that received support from a quarter of all voters. But Mussolini soon pulled out of the national bloc, causing Giolitti to lose power, and the socialist Ivano Bonomi formed a coalition of his own. But within months, his coalition had collapsed, and in early 1922, liberal politician Luigi Factor came to power on the back of another coalition. All of this chopping and changing in government did nothing to settle the economy, and the polarised nation saw both the socialists and fascists gaining in influence. In August, socialists organised a national anti-fascist strike. Once again, the government failed to intervene, so instead the black shirts moved in, dispersing protesters and destroying buildings used by the socialists in Ancona and Genoa. Two months later, Mussolini declared that he intended to run Italy during a huge rally in the city of Naples. It was here where he revealed plans to organise a march on Rome. The Prime Minister Factor didn't take the threat of Mussolini too seriously at first. He even suggested Mussolini could be bought off with an offer of a ministerial position. But as word of the march spread, and greatly exaggerated reports suggested huge numbers of fascists would descend on Rome, Factor decided to declare a state of siege, which is similar to martial law. At the time, there were tens of thousands of soldiers in Rome, led by generals that were loyal to Factor's government. If deployed, Factor was confident they could fend off Mussolini's ragtag crew of militants, only armed with clubs and axes. But as the Prime Minister, rather than Head of State, Factor lacked the authority to make this declaration. That power rested solely in the hands of King Victor Emmanuel III. After initially seeming to like the idea, the king changed his mind, citing the fear that a clampdown on the fascists would lead to a civil war. When Alaric the Visigoth marched on Rome in the 5th century, he was accompanied by 40,000 battle-hardened warriors and an untold number of civilians. By comparison, Mussolini's march turned out to be a bit of a damp squib. Despite some well-orchestrated photo ops showing him at the head of the march, Mussolini actually headed to Milan and left four of his deputies to lead the march. Unlike, say, the famous Jarrow March in England, this one wasn't a nationwide spectacle that would inspire and attract followers on route. In fact, it began in Perugia, only 100 miles from Rome, and for all his support, only 5,000 of Mussolini's followers showed up. This may have been due to logistics, travelling cross-country, or lack of money. Or perhaps, they just weren't that bothered about the enterprise after all. Regardless of the reason, this relatively small, poorly equipped crew made their way to Rome, where they were met by five times as many supporters who decided to travel in the comparative luxury of trains. The night before, on the 28th of October, Mussolini had met with some of the nation's wealthiest power brokers in Milan. Whether they were actual fascists, 
or just protecting their own financial interests from the threat of communism. Regardless of their reasons, the wealthy had Mussolini's back. The following day, King Victor Emmanuel III asked Mussolini to form a new government. This might seem decidedly undemocratic to many of us, but under the Statuto Albertino, the constitution of the time, it was perfectly legal. No party had a majority in parliament. The king had the power to choose an individual to form a coalition, and he had done so twice since the elections the prior year. Both had proven unable to govern, so here he took the opportunity to appoint a man he likely feared, who seemingly had the support of the wealthy, with significant elements of support among the army and the police force. It was a short-term, pragmatic, arguably cowardly decision, but one that would be repeated in Germany a decade later, and one that would ultimately have severe consequences for Italy, and through its repetition in Germany, most of the world. Well, stone the flame and crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.